I had immense insecurities that held me back. So if you've ever heard someone ask the question either of yourself or somebody else, like what's holding you back? To me, I had just a lot of insecurities that caused me to not place big enough bets. And I'm not talking about financial bets, emotional, professional. I was fearful of failure. You're listening to Culture Champions, a podcast about what it takes to cultivate exemplary work cultures and master sustainable business growth. In each episode, host Zain Hassan sits down with business leaders and experts to bring you in-depth conversations on maximizing value and success in all aspects of your company. So I'm unbelievably excited about today's conversation. And today we've got Scott Carter, who I've had the fortune and pleasure of getting to know pretty well. But Scott, for our audience, if you don't mind, I think it'd be great if you could give us a 60 second intro and background. It doesn't have to be 60 seconds, but just to give an overview on who you are. Yeah, great. Zane, thanks for having me today. It's always good spending time with you. I feel very fortunate to be with you today. So by way of background, I started in the restaurant business as a kid. My dad had me in there at 5 a.m. every Saturday and Sunday. And I did that all growing up. We called it slinging hash, scooping ice cream, and really rolling up our sleeves and doing whatever it took to make sure everyone was well-fed. So I did that for a whole bunch of years. I always like to start with that because I learned so much in the restaurant business that I feel like I still apply today. Then going to school and I learned a lot in school. I don't know that my grades would reflect it. So I wasn't getting a lot of calls coming out of college, but I did get one and that's all I needed. So I started off in, in the benefits industry and joined a great group of people, but my mentor in particular, and we were benefits brokerage and when I was employed number five, so did that and learned how to serve clients and learned a set of values there. And the name of that company was FST Associates. And I joined a company by the name of Laura Strategies. That was a very small company and held a leadership position there and helped scale that company before doing it a third time, a company called Laura Strategies, benefits, property casualty, HR, all in Chicago and scaled that business before we exited and then decided to do it again. And the PEO industry, PEO is professional employer organization. It's basically HR outsourcing for small companies. Took over two entrepreneurial companies there, merged them together and scaled it before exiting again, before most recently I have the good fortune of joining a holding company. Even in just your background, you just mentioned a number of things like both small organizations and scaled it. And what I know about you is you're someone who's a true culture champion. You really protect the culture that you built. So- as you've done that both at Loris, I think the one question before you begin the details are, can you talk about what magnitude you scaled it when it started, how many employees versus the exit, both at Loris and then it sounds like you Empower? Loris Strategies in particular, when we were involved, we were about 23 employees. And then when we sold it, we were a couple hundred. And then at Empower HR, we were about 40 employees. And when we sold it, we we're about 130. That's all organic. Yep all organic. And it was tough, to be honest. When I led these organizations or was in a position of leadership, I wanted to be good at everything. And I had a lot of insecurities I was dealing with. And I remember butting heads with some of my business partners who, who were awesome at sales. The irony in that was when I was looking for business partners, I was looking for people who could compliment me 
So I considered myself a culture champion and really focused on service excellence, client service. But I also wanted to be this organic growth, like awesome sales guy too. So despite seeking out partners when they came on board, my ego was getting in the way. And I almost remember to the day at Laura Strategies when the light bulb went off saying, you know what? I'm fortunate to be partnering with people who are great at something that's different than I am. And the sooner I can get over my insecurities and just embrace what I'm great at, the better off we'll be. And there was a cultural element going on underneath the surface there that I wasn't even aware of. But basically, I realized that we had a room that was safe. And once I realized we had safety, all the insecurities or how I worked through my insecurities changed. So I think just safety is key. So I digress a little bit there. No, that was actually a beautiful digression because, man, there was so much wisdom in what you just described. So you talked about the insecurities you had. And as you're scaling and as CEO, when you think about leadership, there are so many different challenges that any leader deals with. It sounds like at Loris, the culture was a byproduct, but maybe not as intentional. And then Empower was very, very intentional around culture. Did I hear that correct? I don't know exactly when the transition happened. I would say it happened at Loris, but let's call it in the second half of the game. The first half was, we're all here, we're trying to serve clients and attract talent, and we were running. So I think it was, we had some core values underneath the surface that were attractive, but they weren't words. It was a way of life, and it was being authentic, but there were no words. I think, especially at Empower, changing culture meant changing the conversation. And changing the conversation meant that we had to have new words. Once we had the words, when I talk to people about it, I'm like, pretend you're like memorizing lines to play a role in a movie. Memorize them first so you can all speak consistent language. And then once you memorize them, you can actually feel them. And once you feel them, you can live them and you can be them and you can do them. And in the early days of Loris, we were doing these things. And thankfully, we were fairly consistent. But as we scaled and as we grew, it wasn't enough. We needed the words. We needed to change the conversation. We needed to change the words, memorize the lines, and then feel them. That level of clarity that you have around what needed to happen, and a lot of that might be hindsight, but how do you have that? Were you thinking like, I'm going to build a great culture? Or where did culture fit into any role you played? At what point did you were like, culture is number one, or was it, no, let's get the business running? I'm just trying to understand, how did you learn? Because there's so much to learn in the process of trying to maintain and be a culture champion. I'm just trying to understand how you learned that. It came with a lot of introspection. And the reason I say that is when I was a kid, and I actually got made fun of at times if I cried publicly for losing a game or maybe a teacher yelled at me, I'd feel my eyes water up. And I'm like, oh gosh, don't cry, don't cry. And then a tear would fall and like my buddy's like, you crying And the reason I talk about that, Zane, I'm getting PTSD just talking about it. Oh my gosh, the the cafeteria one day, like I started crying because the teacher yelled at me. So I was always a sensitive kid and a sensitive guy. And while I took a little bit of a ribbon as a youngster, I think it helped me as I grew older. So when I was looking for a job and I mentioned my grades weren't terrific in college, 
my mentor, his name was Bill. When Bill hired me, he said, hey, I know a couple things about you. One, you're a very likable guy and you can relate to people. And we're in the service business and that's worth a lot. And the second thing is you grind. What your dad put you through in the restaurant, I know you will grind. So if I have those two things, you're good. So I started to appreciate like how my mentor at the time defined culture in his head. I mean, those were essentially, he could turn those into core values. Again, we didn't have words at that time, but I was feeling, okay, I see what he values. So then you take that fast forward, it grew in my career. I was always really sensitive to the energy in a room and then the energy one-on-one. And quite honestly, that's what attracted me to you. When I first met you, I got to know you really well and I never met you in person. But what I valued is the energy I felt coming from you, that you really cared about me and you really cared about the interaction we were having. And so they're like, there's this power of moments. And because I was such a sensitive kid and I still consider myself a sensitive guy today, I realized that chemistry and the energy that we create as humans ultimately is like fundamentally about culture. Culture is like a set of organic relationships and interactions that's constantly happening. So I would be in rooms at Laura Strategies or Empower and I'd walk through the office and I'm such an idealist. I'd want everyone to be like, Hey, Scott, how you doing? Everyone's so happy. You know, we're serving clients, we're selling insurance, we're doing HR. Like, it's awesome. And certain days I'd look around and I'm like, I'm not feeling it. And then my insecurities would kick in and I'd be like, What am I doing wrong? I suck. And what I realized is, well, that's good. So I should be grateful that I'm noticing and I care. But how do I fix it? And at the time, I wasn't a big reader, but I'll give myself some credit. I wasn't even calling it culture, but I recognize that there's this important energy that should exist within our businesses and within our tribe, to steal a word from you. I think of like two components. We can take what I call now the authentic connections that we develop as humans and match it up with a common purpose we could create magic. And that excited me. Two things. How do we establish authentic connections, which is like vulnerability, safety, personal risk, emotional risk, and then match it up with like a shared goal, common purpose? We can do anything. Actually, in my world, it doesn't matter what we do. So when I called you, I'm like, you want to do refrigerators? I like refrigerators. We can brighten people's day if we can give them good food out of refrigerator, whatever you want to do, as long as we share the passion around those two things. And that energy, before it became words that were defined in a purpose that was defined, it was the energy that you were really emphasizing. But like just even in hearing the concept of you describing yourself as sensitive when you're young, but knowing when people ask, what's it like to be the CEO of the organization? There's no way for me to really articulate because every day is different. And unfortunately, there are challenges, right? Especially from a sensitivity level, I think that helps because you can be very empathetic to the other person. But there are times where you have to demote people that are in significant roles. There are times where people can't continue to go with you. So just challenges beyond what I could possibly articulate in any podcast of what it's like every day to try to make sure that we can champion the culture. 
And some of those are just direct, but it's just hard to do because we care about other people. So how did you manage as you go through that? And sometimes you do have to let people go that you care about deeply that represent the right culture, but maybe the circumstances of where the business needs to go and what they bring doesn't correlate anymore. I mean, how did you manage that internal sensitivity and be able to come to the conclusion of being able to decide whether to let someone go or demote them or, or make the hard business decision that you had to make? Well, how did I do it early on? I didn't do it well. And I did end up going to business school. And I don't know about you, but I'd read things like the biggest mistake people made in business is not making the tough decision soon enough. As a parent, people would say, it goes by fast. It's said so often, you almost become tone deaf to that comment. But that comment, I think, has a lot of validity in terms of making the tough decision sooner, especially when it comes to people. And I forever will remember my first tough decision I had to make on a person. And she was well-liked by many, like the cool kid. But I saw the silent impact she was having by how she treated people who she didn't think were the cool kids. And after multiple conversations and me listening and understanding my role in that, not a bad person, but I have to protect the tribe and I got to make the tough decision on one to protect the many. And I realized that there's a lot of eyes on us as leaders. As a leader, everyone's watching and it's almost fraudulent if we're not living our core values and our commitments consistently. So I think someone used that word on me. I don't remember who. That word feels bad, right? Fraudulent? Yeah. So you're a fraud. You're not living your colors. I'm like, whoa, how dare you? So that's thing. So I think it's just remembering for the greater good, we have to make the tough decisions, but it is hard and we're actually doing it because we care. And actually an old business partner by the name of Dan, Dan used to say to me, never stop caring. If you stop caring, it's time for us to hang it up because we're losing our soul. So it is hard. It'll always be hard. When I have to do it again the next time, it's going to be hard. And quietly, I might even cry. But to protect the tribe and to protect the culture, there will be tough decisions. I struggle with them today, Zane, like looking back and I'm in a new chapter now and I look back on relationships and I sometimes wonder, should I go back in on this one? I still think about it. It feels like unfinished business. I don't have it resolved in my head sitting here, quite honestly. I can respect that tremendously because there are so many things and I think about looking back before I was a culture champion, because quite honestly, at the beginning of my entrepreneurial process, I was not as intentional on culture as I am today. And so it's like looking back and part of it was even making amends with people who I didn't treat well that I knew I didn't. And just to make sure that regardless of whether they'd forgive me, that I wanted them to know I was apologetic for how I acted at that time. That says a lot about you, that you care enough to go back in and just let them know that you care because you can't control how they respond, but you can control what you do. And I think that's just an important lesson for all of us because it happens and I'm not perfect. I don't do this perfectly today. I don't do it, but I'm committed to getting better. And that is I could have an interaction yesterday and I did by the way. And then I was like, that wasn't great. 
I should remember listening to your story. I should remember. I can go back. I should go back in today and just say, hey, listen, that wasn't great. I'm better than that. And I care about you. When you were talking about that story about how you've gone back, it just triggered in me that it's important to do, even on a daily basis. I mean, I think that the concept and what I just learned out of the process is that for you, a big part was what Dan said. If you ever stop caring, you should hang it up. And if I understand that great, it means if you ever stop caring about the people, right? We're talking about the people, not what the business per se does, but the people. Yeah. Thanks for that important distinction. The people. So I guess now when I think about the fact that you've done this multiple times and we're always going to be our own biggest critic. So as much as you criticize your own history and things you've done from the external, you've done amazing things. You've scaled amazing organizations and I've seen the level of depth and commitment that almost every single person had to the organization that you and your leadership team and your entire team built. It wasn't just a tribe. It was a community. What is your personal purpose? I think the audience would be great for them to hear that. To create a movement of authentic connections that lead to mind-blowing experiences and better versions of ourselves. And the movement was the word that was on the tip of my tongue. It was a movement. You had created a movement with the team and I noticed it. I could feel the vibe. So when I think about like, we could always do a lot of things better, but you did a lot really, really, really well. And so at the end of the day, when I think about that concept of how you did that so well, as it it relates to every person you bring on from the leadership team, how did you think about like, okay, what's going to be the criteria of who I will select for my partners or the people that join the leadership team? I mean, you said vibe. My kids say that too, good vibes, energy. I am cognizant of energy. And so when I meet with people, a coach I work with, again, dear friend, Rich, he said, when you're in touch with your core, trust your intuition around energy. So I have spent a lot of time on my values and therefore I trust my intuition when I'm feeling good energy. So that's number one, feel the energy. And when we have good energy, and I feel this with you, I believe you and I share oxygen in the room pretty equally. Every once in a while, I'm like, oh my God, did I just throw up on Zane and talk too much? But I think that's an important thing to be aware of and something I've been aware of. So when I'm looking for a team to surround myself with, energy is number one. Number two is conversation. Are we sharing the oxygen in the room? And it's a simple symptom of them saying, I'm interested in you and I care about you. And I'm saying the same to them versus, again, it's not bad, just might not be a good fit for me as someone who has taken all the oxygen out of the room. I interpret that as they care more about them than they do me or more importantly, what we're trying to accomplish together. So that's the second thing. Third, I know we share this in common, just People who have a servant leadership, but a servant heart, like they're committed to being in service of others and the words they use, the experiences they talk about, but people who are driven by being in service of others, I find is attractive because as a leadership team, now translate that to a leadership team, it's a burden, it's an obligation, it's a lot going on. So whatever word you want to put to it. It's a lot. It's a lot to handle. And there's going to be days that aren't so good. You wake up in the morning and whatever, you're not feeling it. Maybe your kids are cranky, you stepped in the dog do, whatever it is. And you got to go and show up at work 
and make it about everybody else. And so that's a unique person. And I'd say just the last thing, I like to have fun. Entrepreneurs, they sign up for heart. So let's have fun. And so you don't think you're funny. I think you're really funny. I like to be around people who make me laugh. And that doesn't mean like they're a comedian. And we do have some on our team, as you know, but also it's just, we can laugh. Yeah. Just not take yourself so seriously, right? Like it's look at opportunities to try to bring levity to whatever serious situation it is, just because things can get so serious. And it's like, wait, wait, I mean, in a month, we probably want to remember the dialogue. So why don't we inject some levity into the conversation too? Right. Bring that full circle to energy. Who do you want to be around? You want to be around people you make you feel good. There's others too, in terms of like grit and perseverance and because we do get punched in the face, not literally, but figuratively. Especially if we have a plan, right? Yeah. Mike Tyson? Yeah. Yeah. Those are all important. And that's where we need a team, though, to help lift one another up when that does happen. So one of the things you mentioned through your coach and how the depth of how in touch you are with your core and the movement of authentic connections that you wanted to create, I mean, I call it thinking time taking the time to think about life and to critically think about whether it's not being in the business or even being on the business, but looking at the business like it's a machine because we control whatever the next thing is we do. Whatever we did, the last thing we did, we can't change because we just did it, but we can control the very next thing we do. And we have that ability to do that at any given moment, no matter what happened one second ago. So when I think about the concept of the thinking time, it's rare that I get the opportunity to meet people that can clearly articulate a personal purpose, that can clearly articulate personal core values. Even to articulate it in a room, you got to go back and test it and see if what you think you developed is really the right set of core values. One of the things that I've noticed in business and the more people I've met is that the more time that they've spent genuinely thinking I get to Bill Gates thing. And I know he spends some time like annually where he goes and just literally thinks for a couple of days. And one of Jeff Bezos' books are about him. It's like one day a week. He doesn't do any business decisions. He just thinks. And so when I think about that concept of how much time you spent thinking about to get clarity and the coach that you did it, I mean, is that a practice and a routine you developed to do that? Yeah. Practice and habits. Well, actually where it all started, you and I both belong to YPO. It started in YPO, my forum, which I don't know if everyone knows what a forum is, but ours is a group of eight guys now, but it was six. And we are like a support group, but dear friends. And as we go through business and in life, we know we have a confidential group of people who's committed to constant pursuit of better. So at any rate, we're on a retreat and we were kayaking down. We launched out of the Hoover Dam. And by the way, something I learned about the Hoover Dam It's the second most secure structure in the United States next to the White House. I had no idea. Yeah, crazy, right? You want to know how we learned that? How? One of the guys on our trip, there wasn't a good bathroom facility there. So he chose to pee in the river and all these security guards came out of nowhere and said, you have to keep your clothes on in that area. They were going to give him a ticket. That could have happened to any of us. I mean, we're all human. Right, especially if you're out in nature. So we're going down the river. And we had a mediator with us and he did this super cool exercise and I'm simplifying it, but he put us into partner. So I had a partner, my friend Amish scurried up this hill in the canyons down there. 
and finish the statement, my life feels ideal when? And then we just started talking. When Amish would ask me questions and I would talk and he would write. And then I think it was two hours. He then identified themes in what I was saying. And one of the themes was my life feels ideal when I am clearing my head in the outdoors. And it sounds so simple, but I'd never thought, stopped to be able to articulate that. My life feels ideal because I'm at peace, because I have clarity, because I'm able to work through things. I'm able to be retrospective or introspective. And I do it best being outside. So then that should become a habit. I should make that a priority because my life feels ideal when I do that. I feel like I'm a better human after I do it. So then it becomes a habit. How do you work that into your daily life? And so that brings me back to my coach. He helped teach me practices and techniques that could, knowing that my life feels ideal when I'm clearing my head outdoors, that could take it to the next level. So some of my practices are just breath work and practicing breath work, some of the Wim Hof stuff, box breathing. But the coolest and most mind-blowing experience that turned into a movement was I started a uh, cold plunging community. What's that? Just, I mean, I've heard it, but for the audience mainly. It's more difficult to do it in South Florida, but in the Chicagoland area, Lake Michigan, beginning in November, probably, Lake Michigan gets into like the 40s degree temp. And then by January and February, Lake Michigan is well into the 30s and oftentimes has a thin layer of ice on it. So we immerse ourselves in the icy cold waters of Lake Michigan and we practice breath work to regulate our body temperature where we can sit in it for, you know, extended periods of time. It's like a glacier, you're like jumping in a glacier in the morning and you're like practicing breath work. Like, yeah, yeah, I know you did that really well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, four in, four, four out. It, yeah. Perfect. That's remarkable. It was transformational for me to do it myself. But the bigger win in it was we've had over 200 people in my community who have participated in this cold water immersion. And easily seven days a week now, there are people down there doing it. This is bigger than me. It's I don't take any credit other than maybe being one of the initial crazy people in that area to do it. People have been doing this around the world for 100 years. My friend Rich just said, hey, this is what you should do. I was in an emotional rut at that time. I was actually depressed. I couldn't figure out what to do. And he's like, try this. Your life feels ideal when you're clearing your head outdoors. Let's go sit in Lake Michigan in the freezing cold water. And I was like, well, that sounds pretty freaking crazy, but I'll give it a try. That's amazing. That story is amazing. And that's in service of others because the way you just described it, I mean, one of the things you emphasize early and one of the things that I look at whenever I'm talking to someone is how much they emphasize the team and the people that they serve versus the word I, right? So, which you've done consistently throughout every part of this dialogue and ever, ever since I've known you. So I think in every way, this dialogue has been one that I believe the audience is going to get a lot of value out of. So in service to our audience, I'm glad we came to get on this. So one of the final questions that I ask everybody is, if you had the opportunity to go back and talk to Scott at 22, what lessons would you try to teach Scott so that based on what you've learned today, so that you could prepare a younger Scott for success? And this doesn't just mean Scott, right? This would be 
advice for anybody, but it's really based on based on what you've learned about yourself and things that you feel like would be great lessons to have learned earlier. Here's what I'd say, looking back, and I actually feel emotion as I'm saying this. I had immense insecurities that held me back. So if you've ever heard someone ask the question either of yourself or somebody else, like what's holding you back? To me, I had just a lot of insecurities that caused me to not place big enough bets. And I'm not talking about financial bets, emotional, professional. I was fearful of failure. That's probably number one, like work through insecurities. We all have them. I still have them today. I think I mentioned that earlier, but work through them. And I think the best way to work through them is vulnerability. And I wish I did surround myself with great people who created a safe environment. It was my choice not to be vulnerable enough because I had these insecurities. Now, if the advice to somebody else is make sure that you surround yourself with people who create a safe environment and encourage vulnerability because we're doing things together as a family, as a tribe, that's the fun part. How do you feel when you're vulnerable and how did that work for you? How long did it take for you to be comfortable in your own skin? And did that come naturally to you? No, no, not at all. And that's a great question. I think like we mentioned earlier and you mentioned YPO, which YPO for the audience who may not be aware at all, YPO stands for Young Presidents Organization. And the concept behind YPO is theoretically if you're in, there's some qualifications about in order to get in, but it's the leader of a company that has certain qualifications and then it's a peer-to-peer ability in a completely confidential where nothing is ever shared. So in a non-competitive environment, I think YPO helped me a lot with that. I struggle with that, the vulnerability still today. I think I'm very vulnerable when it comes to in RTA today. I believe I'm very vulnerable and I lead with vulnerability because to me, it's one of those things where it's like at the end of the day, I know there are areas that I'm extremely weak. But what you mentioned about the concept of am I comfortable in my own skin every day, I actually think, and I'll be very vulnerable right now, I start thinking about, am I actually going to be able to do this long-term? Am I going to be able to build what I want to build? And a big part of why this show is even exists is because I'm trying to get insights from those who've done it and make sure that I can avoid the landmines or have better guidance through the process because I'm so curious about how people built the culture and tribes that they did at scale that I want to make sure that I can take those lessons. And I figured that an audience would hopefully want to learn the same thing too. But as it relates to being comfortable on my own skin, it depends on the day. I mean, it depends on what happened that morning at home. It depends on whether my wife and I interacted well, if I was a good dad to my kids in the morning, or if I didn't even get to see them. And that changes how I show up in that moment. And then how I feel about myself. And then do I look the part? Do I feel like I'm the part? Every conversation I have with somebody, I'm criticizing myself silently about how that could have gone so much better. Maybe there's no such thing as true comfort in your own skin. I'm definitely comfortable being vulnerable and leading vulnerably, but I'm not anywhere near at the point of saying like, I'm confident that this is going to be a path or a journey that won't be hard. I think it's going to be really hard, but it's going to be really rewarding. And what I've noticed is you're really present, not just present with the interaction, but you're present with what's going on and within yourself. Because you oftentimes articulate it. You have continuous vulnerability by just being present, 
for that reason. I bet on you, man. Um, and I really appreciate it. I think one of the best, if not probably the best dialogue we've had, a lot of insights gleaned. And so for the audience, people who want to get in touch with you, what would be the best way? We'll drop it down in the show notes afterwards, but how would you like people to get in touch with you if they have questions and want to learn more, want to reach out? Probably email scott.carter at risktag.com. I learned from those conversations too. It's something I think Zane and I share is the commitment to being curious, which active listening, continuous learning. So the more authentic connections we can create, that movement will continue. So reach out, let's catch up. My only ask is show up and be vulnerable and authentic. We'll make magic happen. I love it, Scott. Thank you so much for joining the show. I'm 100% confident I'm going to ask you back on down the road. So thanks for having me. Looking forward to going on the journey together. We're going to have a good ride. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to the Culture Champions podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You'll find links to any resources mentioned in the show notes. If you're enjoying our show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. And if you have someone you'd like to hear on the show or a topic you'd like to see covered, please email pat.davisbryant at risktag.com.